Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how and what we write. And my guest today is the novelist and short story writer Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen, welcome to the show. Man, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, you're very welcome. So uh, this is the Halloween episode. So I wanted to get a, you know, an author known for their horror. I know you do more than horror, but I wanted to get an author known for their horror on the show. Mm-hmm. But for the benefit of listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, just tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Stephen Graham Jones. I've been writing for or publishing, I guess, for probably 20 years now. Yeah, I think 20 years exactly. I've got between oh 25 and 30 books, I guess. I don't know how to count comic books and co-written books and all that. Um, I do mostly horror, especially the last 10 years, probably I do mostly horror, but I've also done crime. I've been, you know, thriller. I've done just weird stuff, science fiction. I've dabbled in fantasy at short length. I haven't gone epic with fantasy yet. And, but I always come back to horror. That's where I land. Yeah. And given the, the rate that you seem to write at, I'm sure if you did want to turn your hand to fantasy, it wouldn't take you too long to, you know, cover the bases. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, there's so many good people writing in fantasy now. I wonder what could I even contribute, you know, but maybe, maybe, maybe there's a wedge of space in there somewhere. I'm sure there would be. Sure there would be. So how did you, I mean, you say, yeah, you've been publishing for 20 years, you know, you've been around like uh, many of us. So what first got you into writing and storytelling? Oh, man. Um, you know, when I was in fourth grade, I went to, we lived way out in the country in West Texas. And I checked out Wilson Rawls' novel, Where the Red Fern Grows, in fourth grade, because I think we all had, we had to check out a book that was like some sort of library project we were doing. And I checked that out because it was about hunting. And I, you know, I was into hunting. And it took me three checkout periods to read that book. But I distinctly remember sitting at my desk at school. And at the very end of that novel, it's a novel about um, coon hunting. At the very end of it, there's an axe head stuck into a tree. It used to be an axe, but the handle is right off. It's just a rusted axe head, and there's a rusted lantern hanging from that axe head. And I distinctly remember closing that book and holding the back flap closed, this little mass market paperback, and thinking, I can do that. I can stick an axe in a tree and hang a lantern from it. And out from that point on, I always knew that I, I could end stories. Um, I never had any idea about being a writer or a teacher or anything like that because I, where I grew up, you either went to the oil field or the cotton field. And I wanted to go into the cotton field because everybody I knew who worked in the oil field was always losing fingers. So I figured I could keep my fingers if I worked in the cut, drove a tractor. And so that was where it started for me was that one novel. Wow. and. You said fourth grade, so that's what, you were nine, ten years old, something like that? Yeah, yeah, something like that. So that's pretty early to get the bug. What did you, how did you develop it then? Did you start writing, you know, for in your spare time for school or something? I didn't, no, I didn't. I mean, I, I would, whenever I had an essay or a paper due, I could always do that, you know, in the 10 minutes before class or whatever, that was never any problem. And I remember all in high school, um, I went to a lot of different high schools all over the place, but I remember the English teachers would always figure out that I could um, read out loud in a way that other people could understand, or I could give the word, the sentences, rhythm, or, or something. I don't know. I just I understood how they worked, I guess is what I'm saying. So when we had to read um, Beowulf or Chaucer or something, 
the teacher would always call on me and I would read it out loud for everybody. And um, if I was in class, I wasn't in class all that often, but, and I do the same thing in science class. And, you know, in science class, we had a coach as a science teacher and he wasn't super into it. So part of his like lesson plan was to have us read aloud the chapter, the assigned chapter every day. And, and everybody would always vote for me to read it because I could read through the whole chapter and not stumble, you know, but <laughs> that never turned it, that never turned into writing for me. Um, the only writing I did in high school was long apology notes to girls that I would fold three times and put under their windshield wiper so we could go out again on Saturday after whatever happened Friday, you know, and I wrote a whole lot of those, of course, but um, <laughs> actually my, I didn't start writing stories until I ended up at college and I never planned to go to college. It was completely random that I ended up there, but I was in World Lit 2, I think it was, listening to some lecture about Chaucer or Spencer, and I was way in the back of a 300-person class, big old auditorium, and I had a spiral and a pen, and a couple of police officers step in, take off their glasses because it's dark, and they start like casing the joint looking for somebody. So I'm scooching down in my seat because every time the cops are in the area, they're always there for me. And sure enough, they were there for me. They pulled me out. But this time it wasn't for something I had done the previous weekend. It was because one of my uncles had been burned really, really terribly over most of his body. And the town I was in had the best burn unit in the region. So they had airlifted him there. And I was the only family member they could find. So for three days and three nights, I sat at the burn unit ICU waiting for him to live or die. And all I had was my pen and my spiral. And just out of complete and absolute boredom, I didn't want to, I, I think I either read all the magazines or I was tired of the magazines. And I just wrote a story. And when I came back to my composition class on Monday after missing two days of class, I didn't have the personal essay I was supposed to have written, but I remember standing there at the teacher's desk, the instructor's desk, and I opened my spiral and I ripped out those pages I'd written, that story, and I handed it to her and I said, I didn't do my essay, but I did do some words. Maybe this will count for something. And she took it and she liked it and she passed it on to someone in creative writing in the department and that person typed it up for me and entered it into a departmental contest and I won that contest. I got $150 and that just opened my eyes so much. I had no idea you could make money for telling lies, you know? <laughs> and, and so after that, in undergrad, I, I was a philosophy major. I wasn't an English major, but I just kept on writing stories so that I could win money, you know, and just kept taking more and more writing classes. Wow. I mean, uh, I, this is jumping ahead a little, but I know that I'm, I'm, you are a prolific short story writer and I have seen reports of you literally writing you know a sort of flash fiction short story during commercial break or you know sitting at the back of a lecture or something and i mean i assume that all came from writing that first story in the under those very strange and unusual circumstances in which to write fiction yeah you know i never thought about it that could be the case but um i don't know um I do write quickly, but I never think that it's like a special ability or proclivity or anything like that. I just, um, when I'm writing a novel anyways, I have to like intellectually and emotionally invest in these characters so deeply in order for them to be real to me, real enough to write about that, that 
puts me in a state where I can no longer for sure tell what's real and what's not real. Like I stepped so deeply into the world of my novel that I don't know where it ends and the real world begins. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. So I do. It's like I'm in a tunnel. I just race as fast as I can to get to that point of line at the end so I can be back in the real world, which is why I kick out novels fairly quickly. As for stories, yeah, I usually will do a story in the afternoon, I guess. A novella, I think I'll, I think novellas are usually like four or five days or something. And um, But what I've found with stories is if I usually will write it in the afternoon, maybe two afternoons, but if I live with it too much longer, then I overwrite it. I keep second guessing myself and I ruin it, you know? So I just have to always be moving. I always have to keep going forward. If I stay too long, if I stay too long on a piece, then I generally break it and it becomes unrecoverable. Mm. I, I feel that not so much with novels. I, I do tend to sort of rewrite and keep rewriting my novels incessantly, but short stories, I absolutely feel you on that. Yeah. That if you yeah. take too long, I mean, I, I don't write them as quickly as you, but like you, I don't revise them much when I do, because as you say, if you take, if you rework it too much, when it's so short to begin with, it loses some of that energy that it has when you, when you get it down in the first draft. I think, I think so. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard when um, you're revising to know what to keep and what to throw away. Like well, if, what's the key piece that if I throw it away, the magic is gone from this piece, you know, it's, it's like, to me, writing is less about the craft of like mechanically staging this or trying to make this passage work or getting the dialogue right. And it's really about in revision, um, knowing what to keep and what to throw away, which is, I guess, Kenny Rogers and the Gambler, right? I should get that tattooed <laughs> on me. <laughs> well, but it also, it comes down to instinct and experience, doesn't it? You know, it's, yeah. I think yeah. every writer I know, we all have an instinct for story, uh-huh. but we then have to, most of us anyway, have to then combine that with the sort of the, the, the grind over the years of gaining the experience to know whether we can trust our instincts, you know, how to hone those instincts and to know, as you say, what fits and what doesn't. And and the, the hard part there is trying to disentangle your own instinct from your own stubbornness or what you're disgu- what, what what's your laziness what you're disguising as instincts you know you just don't want to work hard enough to make this passage work you know yeah yeah okay yeah yeah oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i feel seen <laughs> as they say so okay so you started with short stories and found that you know enjoyed that you could get paid for it how did that lead to novels you know, I went to, um, I never planned on going to grad school. I didn't even know what grad school was, but um, my professors convinced me to put out one application for English for writing and one for philosophy. And so just to satisfy them, I put out one application to each. And sure enough, the English place got back to me pretty quick. and said they wanted me, and I figured I can waste two more years here. Keeps me from the hot sun and the tractor, you know. And So I went on to get my master's and that turned into getting a PhD, which I did in two years, I guess, but um, at a different school at Florida State University. I got my master's at the University of North Texas. But um, the way my first novel happened was at Florida State, my my dissertation director was Janet Burroway, and she was like a mentor, of course. I hung on her every word. She was really capable, really smart, um, really talented. And... Every year, the program would throw a party called Writer's Harvest, where they would bring down agents and editors from New York or wherever. Back then, it was mostly New York. 
And we would just circulate among them and kind of try to understand the industry a little bit. So we're at one of those receptions and I'm talking to my dead director, Janet Burroway, and her editor, her then editor, Janet Silver, who was kind of a, you know, she was pretty high up the, the chain at her, her big house in New York, her big publishing house. And then Janet Burroway did that thing that professors or, you know, mentors do. She said, I'm going to leave y'all two to talk. And she went to do something else. And so there I am, like in the headlights of this major, you know, commercial editor. And I had this kind of like, almost out-of-body experience where I heard myself telling her about this novel that I had. And I probably went on for four or five minutes, just telling her the ins and outs, the ups and downs, everything. At the end of it, she said, that sounds like exactly the kind of thing I want to publish. Can you give it to me on Monday? Can you email it to me? Not email. Can you mail it to me? This was 97. And, and I said, no problem, but it might not be Monday because I have to do one more polish on it. And she said, whenever you're done, works for me. And so I went home like at 2.30 that that morning and I started writing that novel. <laughs> I just made it all up, you know. And um, <laughs> So when you said one more polish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so then, it, it and that was my first novel I ever wrote. I had no idea how to do it. Zero idea how to cross that many pages. It was so daunting, so terrifying. I couldn't imagine having a story last that long. And it took me 10 months. That's as long as it's ever taken me to do a, a draft of a novel. And um, what I did, because I didn't have the luxury of like hitting a wall. Like to me, a novel is you write 10 or 12 pages really fast. And then you hit a wall and you don't know where to go. And you have to figure out how to get under this wall, over it, through it, around it, whatever. And then you move on to the next set of 10 or 12 pages. But nowadays, when you hit that wall, you go to social media and you cast about all tragically romantically saying oh what was me writing is so hard and all that stuff but back in 97 we didn't have that you know so <laughs> and also i felt the pressure of a deadline so instead of hitting those walls and stopping every time i hit one of those walls i'll just reach in my head and pull out a piece of my life and put it on the page and change the names so that first novel for me is extremely autobiographical it's weird weird for me to read it because it's just pieces of my life all through it but the trick is i had no idea this was going to be the case that kind of set the mold for how i did how i've done every one of the rest of my novels um i, I mean i'm better i think i'm better now at getting around or through or over the walls but all the same i still pull pieces out of my life or my day or whatever and put them on the page i think we all do that really because to tell you the truth i don't think we can render on the page any emotion we have it to some degree felt, you know? And so we're always disguising like, uh, we'll, we'll have somebody on the, in the story having a big divorce, you know, a Kramer versus Kramer divorce, but it'll really be about a breakup we had when we were sophomores in high school, something like that, you know? Oh, it's, it's where writing kind of crosses with acting, isn't it? Is that need for, yeah. for empathy? Exactly. And I really think that that's how I write. Like, I read about like I don't know, Pacino and all these all these actors who do method acting, and that's how I write. I just I imagine myself in the shoes of this protagonist, and what do I do? You know, that, that's how I figure out what happens next. I don't figure out what happens next by some outline I've got or anything like that. I just think, how do you get out of this room? How do you get out of the next room? We'll come back to that later because that's one of my favorite topics. Uh, <laughs> so you uh, you sent this off to this to the editor in New York. And was that your first novel? Was that then published? 
it was published, but not by her. What happened with that novel was also my dissertation. Um, and for a dissertation, you have to have a committee. And for the committee, you have to have a quorum of members, like a minimum threshold of members before you can actually you know, pass and get your PhD. And so I had my member, my committee all set up, my dissertation defense date set. And then about two weeks before, one of my committee members had to bail. He had a family emergency, which left me in a lurch because if I didn't have enough bodies in that room, I couldn't get my degree. And it was all, it had all been for nothing. So I went to a Gertrude Stein professor I'd worked with and we got along kind of well. And I said, hey, man, can you come sit on this committee? You don't have to read this stupid book. You you don't even have to vote yes. And you just have to sit there and be a body. You just need to make it quorate. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and he said, sure, I'll do it. So I printed it up, gave it to him. It was like 400 pages, 500 pages. I don't know. And, um, and he shows up at the defense that day with the thing just dog-eared and marked up all. And he had actually read it. And I was really impressed that he, a literature professor, had read this um this novel that he had no real reason to read and then instead of asking questions he said i want to publish this turns out he was the he was the publisher of fiction collective 2 which is a really um well-respected innovative press around since 1974 and and i was like wow then i was also like it shouldn't be this easy so i, I told him no i said i'm, I'm, I'm gonna go be thomas pension in new york you know because you know i was really into thomas pension at the time he was my hero so what I did then was, well, I moved back to Texas because there's a cheap rent house I could live in and I could work in a warehouse. But one of my friends had just bought a short bed, black Ford, new body style, really sharp truck. And he was wanting to write too. And he decided he was going to sell. He sold his truck, got some cash and moved to New York City to be a writer. He thought that's how you do it. Just the same way you'd be an actor by going to LA or something. And so he's up there trying to make it as a writer and he got a job being a janitor in Manhattan, which gave him uh, access to a lot of editorial publishing houses, offices and agent agency, like literary agency offices. And so what he would do was he would um, sneak in after hours and steal the agency's letterhead and write um, letter, like cover letters from a novel that he'd print up. And then he would leave those manuscripts on the editor's desks as if they had made up the food chain to there, made oh, up the, wow. the stream. And um seemed like a great plan and we never got busted, but we got a lot of rejections too. And so then I <laughs> so then I came back to um that first professor, the F C two publisher, and said, Hey you still game? And he said he was and so they published my first novel and it got some awards, got some good reviews, got some attention and I was off to the races, man. I, I am amazed that you didn't get busted for that agency thing. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the plan if one of the editors had said, this is great, I want to publish it? Um, my friend, I mean, my friend, he, he's, he's kind of like an operator, you know? He, I think he would have figured out how to fake like he knew agency and legal stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, I suppose... <laughs> But, you know, if an editor calls up an agency and says, hey, this book you sent me is great, I want to publish yeah. it, they're not going to yeah. turn around yeah. and say, oh, no, that's not one of our authors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that is that is a nuts story. Um, <laughs> so did you stick with that, uh, with that press for a while or did you, you know, immediately sort of move on to bigger houses or what? Um, 
I did immediately move on. My second novel was a thriller, a crime thriller, All the Beautiful Sinners. My first novel, Fast Red Road, was a really weird novel, giant coyotes, and underground submarines, and all kinds of weird cartoonish stuff that I thought was like a cross between Thomas Pynchon and Gerald Wessner, two of my hero writers. But um, And I love that novel a lot, of course. However, when I'd go do book events for it, I found people kept asking me questions about being Indian in America, being American Indian and my tribe and issues, tragedy, history, all that stuff, instead of like engaging the story. And I didn't think, I wasn't super comfortable with that because I didn't sign up to be a spokesperson for all of Indian America. I'm not qualified to be. And I don't know all the history, all the issues, all that. So um, what happened was, the novel I wrote immediately after the Fast Red Road was a big horror novel in three parts. They had, I think it ended up with like 600 footnotes that are all kind of, and they're all, they all have footnotes to the footnotes and everything. And I, I took off Thanksgiving. I used to go hunting at Thanksgiving, but in the winter of 99, instead of going hunting, I stayed home and finished this novel. And I was going to get my agent who I just got to submit it come January. And then January 1st, we all started getting word that there was a big horror novel coming down the pike and we started seeing samples online and it was Mark Z. Danielewski's house of leaves, which is a big horror novel mm-hmm. with all these crazy footnotes, you know? And, and that effectively killed my footnote horror novel because he already had a foothold in the market, you know, and I was just going to be derivative. So it took me until 2006 to get that novel published after house of leaves had died down a little. I mean, it's never died down. It's still very much in circulation, of course, but, um, we submitted that horror novel anyways. My agent tried to submit it to see what would happen to all the New York presses. And there was a, kind of an upstart press who had a whole lot of liquid capital called Rugged Land. They were marketing themselves as books plus film. So they only wanted to do books that could turn into movies. And they had the, the money to back a lot of the movies, you know? And uh, so... She sent this horror novel, which was then called All the Beautiful Sinners, it would become Demon Theory, to that publisher. And, you know, most of the rejections you get from publishers are, we don't know how to market this. Or we've already got a book like this for this season. Um, they're all really kind. They kind of like, they don't insult the novel. Or they say it's a wonderful novel. It's just not right for us. It's it's like George Costanza on Seinfeld breaking up. He's saying, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know? And, um. And, but this time, this was not the case. This time, the head, the publisher, like the the man, the editor in chief there, wrote a two or three page kind of screed against this novel, saying it's one of the worst things he's ever seen. It's an insult to every, like it was just coming down hard. And we got that rejection. We're like, wow, so they hate us. And that was fine. You know, people can hate me. That, That doesn't matter. And we went on doing our thing. And then about two months later, the publisher calls up and says, Hey, um, we still hate that novel. They want, they like started with that. We still hate that novel, but, um, we can tell from reading it that this guy knows how to put stories together. So what if he came and wrote thrillers for us? And, and my initial response to my agent was, you know, they hate my stuff. I should probably better not work with them. But then they offered pretty good money. And I said, I think I can do this. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) and so I wrote a, a thriller for them and they and i was calling it at the time what was i calling it iron horse literary no sub, subterranean iron horse literary blues which is a stupid stupid title um and 
at the end, before he published it, they said, let's, let's pull the title off that initial novel you submitted, All the Beautiful Center, to make it the title of this. I said, fine, you know? But the trick with that novel was I was just starting out with a commercial press, so I had no weight to throw around. I kind of had to sign whatever contract they wanted me to sign. And the contract they wanted me to sign gave them chapter approval, meaning every chapter I wrote, I had to send it to them. And they would change this, that, and the other and send it back. And I had to incorporate those changes before I can move on to the next chapter. So when I now read that novel, it's just, it seems to me, it's just like a long list of my petty responses to editorial tampering. You know, Um, I mean, they weren't trying to ruin it. They were just trying to make it better. I should have been a more um, adult writer, you know, and taking, taking the suggestions to heart, I think. But I was always I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. I had to learn some way, I guess. And so we published that, and it, it you know it made the rounds. And I have a, I had to do a follow up novel with them. It was a two book deal. They had wanted me to do sign of like a lifelong contract, practically, where I do a thriller a year for them. And I was game. I can do that, no problem. But they told me that that also meant I couldn't do any other books. And so I said, I'm, no way, I'm going to do horror, I'm going to do science fiction, I'm going to do fantasy, I'm going to do westerns, I'm going to do all the stuff I love in addition to these thrillers. But they didn't want that. So I signed a two-book deal. And then the second novel, Seven Spanish Angels, I wrote it. It was about 350 pages of serial killer novel. And I was up in New York City at the time. I gave it to my editor, met with him two days later. He had read the whole thing. I was sitting at his desk across from him. And he puts it down between us, picks up the first page, reads it to me, sets it face down beside the manuscript. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a while. <laughs> you know, he's going to read the whole book to me. <laughs> but, um, You're like, you know, I wrote this, right? You don't need to read it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. He sets that page down that he read. And then with his other hand, he pushes the rest of the, like the 349 pages over to the side of the desk. And he says, that first page is good. The rest of it, not so much. And, and so I had to start at page one and rewrite a whole different novel. And the next time I brought it to him, he read like, he didn't read. He like stepped at like 15 pages and pushed the rest away. And so by the end of that process, I'd written about 2,000 pages to get a 350-page novel, which was a wonderful learning process. You know, I don't begrudge them that at all. It taught me a whole lot about how to work with an editor and how to revise and reconceptualize and everything. I really think it was kind of vital to my learning process, but it was a whole lot of work too. And then at the very end, he accepted like the first 349 pages. But on the very last page, he wanted me to make a change about the reveal of the serial killer, which I thought kind of um, um, wasn't ethically responsible. Anyways, and I told him I couldn't do it. And there was, they had invested a lot of money in, in me at that time. And so there was a whole lot of harsh words for about two weeks coming from them through my agent but we broke up they signed the rights back to me and so i only ended up doing one novel with them all the beautiful centers which was so i went from my first novel with an indie press to a more commercial press and then my third novel was back to the indie press another kind of weird novel set in the alternate america wow that's i've never heard maybe this is more common uh, in america or something i don't know but i've never heard of a chapter approval contract that seems crazy to me no totally crazy i haven't heard of it since then it may have been a special thing they rigged up because they thought i didn't know what i was doing i don't know (laughs) yeah i guess yeah wow that's yeah i will say i think it was uh very mature of you to 
turned down that sort of lock-in, that early lock-in at such an early stage of your career. I did something similar, and I have never once regretted it. I was offered an exclusive yeah. early on. Uh, in this was when I was in comics, and yeah. I was barely established. And I said, "No, I don't want to lock myself in at this early stage because I want to do all these different things and establish myself exactly. first. Um, and I had, but and there was a similar reaction. Like the publisher was like, "This seems crazy to me. Like, surely now is when you want to take the security of having an yeah. exclusive." But I was like, "That's not how it works for me." Exactly, and I think I feel sorry for all those writers who get the dollar signs in their eyes and do sign those contracts and they're locked in writing books that they don't really have their heart in, you know, but that's yeah. gotta be kind of soul crushing to do that. I think, I, I think uh, at that stage, at that early stage in your career, it's so difficult to know what kind of writer you're going to be over the long term. Mm -hmm. I mean, and what yeah. kind of yeah. stories you can keep writing for years and years and years, because it is, it's very easy as again at that early stage for the bloom to come off the rose, you know, and no, you're, to you're kind of, totally yeah, right. as you say, think, Oh yeah, I can do this for years and years. And then three years later, you're like, my God, what have I done? I think it's so important at, the, at those times to like, if you can have someone who has been in the industry for 20 or 25 years, who you can go to and ask them, you know, what, what's up with this? Cause chances are, they know it's like Brian Keene tells the horror writer, Brian Keene tells a story about being at a con as a young writer and running into Jack Ketchum, who was already, you know, really established at that point at the bar. And Brian Keene was trying to figure out how to do his first book contract or his early book contract anyways. And Jack Ketchum, the really seasoned writer, gave him a point gave him some pointers and that just changed everything. I think if if we all could somehow be assigned um a writer who's been in the game for two or three decades, that would help us all so immensely. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, the uh, Writers Guild of America, they do do that. Oh, really? Like they, when, yeah, yeah. When you join the WGA, you get assigned a mentor who is generally somebody, and it's not, you know, they're not with you every day or something, but they're somebody that you can go to for advice and pointers and what have you. And they're generally somebody, yeah, who has a lot of experience and is willing to take part in this program. Yeah, that's um, nice. But obviously there's no equivalent for literature or for comics. I mean, the difference with comics. Yeah. Yeah, as you'll know, having written some yourself, is that the community is so small that it's actually yeah. very easy to get advice from people who've been doing it a long time, just because mm -hmm. it's so small and everybody's so accessible. That's wonderful. Yeah, and it is, as you say, it's really useful. So, okay, so let's let's finally then, how did you make the leap to being, as you say, like for, you know, certainly for the last you know decade or so, you've been mostly a horror writer. What? Yeah. Why horror? And how did you make that move? You know, um, why horror? It's one of the genres I read coming up. I read when I was like from the time I was 10 till I was probably until now. <laughs> I mean, um, it was, I would always read horror, science fiction, fantasy, and Westerns. I didn't much go in, into action or military very much. Um, but I loved all those. And, and of all of those, horror has always been the best fit for me um and i think i the i think when i fell in love with horror it actually wasn't from books it was from i was in eighth grade so i guess i'm 12 or 13 probably 13 and i'm living down outside austin texas a little town called wimberley and i hooked up started running with this gang of kids who had a friend at the video store meaning every friday after school we'd truck to the video store and walk out with 
like six VHS slashers Jason, <laughs> yeah. Freddy for the weekend. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, um, it was wonderful. And we'd go to a different friend's house and he had this junky garage up in the trees and his dad to keep us out of the house had put a little TV and a couch out there and a VCR. So we would just pile onto that couch and, watch Jason and Michael and Freddie do their business until about two in the morning when his dad would get enough beers in him that he would put on his Freddie glove. He had, you know, a costume glove and he would come out to the garage, the outside of the garage and scrape his claws down the metal door. And that would terrify us to no end. And, and we would scream and run for the side door of the garage, and just pile out into the night. And for some reason, if we, if we could, get to the creek and jump in the creek and we were safe i don't know why that would mean safe from freddy krueger but that's what it meant that's what it meant to us and and that feeling of running through the blackness so terrified that i can't even think but smiling at the same time with like tears coming back to my eyes from terror that feeling i think i got addicted to it and so when i read horror or when i write horror that's always what I'm looking for, what I'm trying to do, I want to give people that rush, that feeling. Um, as for why I went to horror, like about midway through my career, it's because of what I was saying earlier, that at book events, I kept getting questions about um, Indian concerns, which my characters are all Indian. They've always been all Indian, but that doesn't mean that I want to talk about something that happened in 1884 or anything, you know? Um and so I finally just said, screw it. Screw all y'all people who are asking those questions. I'm going to write about zombies and slashers and werewolves and let's see, see what questions you ask me then. So <laughs> I just, I, I quit doing the kind of books that they were looking for and went to the kind of books that I presume they weren't looking for. Did those for, and just started doing those and I'm still doing those really. But really what that, the result of that was that for, man, for probably five, eight years, I felt like I was two writers on two different tracks that weren't really compatible. One was a writer with like literary intentions or aspirations, I guess. And the other was commercial horror or weird horror or something like that. And so I was two people, two writers at the same time. And then in 2016, I had Mongrels come out, which is a werewolf novel, but it's told in a way where each chapter is a standalone story and it has these little flash fictions between the chapters which is to say it's kind of a um, form or a method of delivery that owes more to literary fiction, but I'm still, I was still getting to write about werewolves, about horror creatures, which I love, love, love. And I feel like in 2016, I became a single writer again. I was able to merge my two writer selves into a single book, you know? And so since then I've been sticking with being a single writer, which is kind of nice. I've done Mac in the interior, which got a good audience and, now the only good Indians, which is fun of a lot of people, and it, the only good Indians has a, it's taken some formal chances as well. You know, to me that's kind of, I love like you know, gutting people and like disemboweling them or decapitating characters, all that stuff. I live for that stuff, but at the same time, I want to have fun with the form. You know, I want to do things that haven't been done before, and I've found a place somehow where I'm able to do that, and so I'm completely satisfied. Well, and talking about things that haven't been done before, when you moved from your sort of, you know, more thriller or literary stuff to, yeah, deciding to do werewolves and zombies and what have you, you were still, your books still featured Indian characters and presumably that 
is in itself or at the time was unusual. Probably, yeah, because, I mean, being American Indian, we're supposed to just um, write things which the critics already have their tool set ready for. Like, we're supposed to come out of the oral tradition. We're supposed to talk about, like, politics and identity and, I don't know, poverty and alcoholism and all that stuff. But, um, but yeah, I want to talk about zombies and werewolves, and I don't want to mess with all the other stuff. I don't think I'm compelled to either. I think... The Native American Renaissance dealt with that a whole lot, and it's not—it's not something that's ever going to get solved. It's more about highlighting that stuff for the audience, I think. But um, I just want to have fun, you know. And to me, it's not fun to write a novel about the politics of identity. I guess. Well, and this is one of the—and obviously, I mean, I'm—you know—I'm a middle-aged white guy, so this is kind of obviously slightly tentative territory for me. But I have always. I've always tried to write diverse characters. I've always included, you know, sort of diverse cast in my work. But obviously I can't and I wouldn't try to write about, yeah, the Native American experience or the black experience or something because that's not, it's not my story to tell. I don't have that insight. And so, but my, my response to people asking me about that has always been, well, why shouldn't stories that aren't about that not also feature this diverse cast. Why shouldn't you be able to do a gangster story with a diverse cast? Why shouldn't you be able to do a sci-fi story with a diverse cast? Why shouldn't you, as you said, do be able to do a horror story about Native Americans that isn't actually talking about the quote-unquote Native American experience? Yeah, I mean, Philip Pullman says the same thing in his book of essays he did recently, um, talking about how the novelists like unique ability is to step into others perspectives you know and or to look at it the other way like i'm if i only write stories about a 48 year old black guy who lives in colorado and teaches fiction those are gonna be pretty boring stories you know i don't want to do i want to do exciting stuff um i mean there's there's not a, as far as i know anyways there's not like a litmus test for if it's if it's good or if it's wrong or if it's damaging or any of that stuff um and but I like I agree that um, if I like my next novel coming out has um, a woman protagonist, you know, and well, I could I could very well have messed everything up and gotten it all wrong, but I tried really hard not to, you know. Um, and I had a lot of women read it, so they could hopefully keep me on track. Yeah, and, I, I think that intent is is important to me that's you know sort of almost as important as the the quality of delivery i write almost exclusively female lead characters um Mm -hmm. and have done pretty much throughout my entire career for a whole variety of reasons but i do also have yes female beta readers i have women you know i I talk to women i know women i ask them things i will get their opinion on stuff i'm unsure of and i will always have female beta readers for exactly that reason you know, and I don't always agree with them. You know, sometimes these things are a matter of opinion, but I will always listen to the input and I will always ask oh, yeah. for the input because, yeah, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You don't. Yeah, for sure. You know, early in my career, this is about 2002 or something. There had been a really big novel, kind of a military novel the year before that had been on the bestseller list and everything. And the novelist who was a first time novelist was not having any luck writing the follow up book. And so a publisher came to me and they said, Hey, we know you can kick out books. Why don't you do this for us? Ghostwrite this for, for us. And they had a, they were often like they were dangling a really pretty good check in front of me. 
and I wanted to so, so badly. However, the character, the protagonist was a black character. And I felt like I am going to, I thought I could possibly do it, do it, maybe even do it well, but I was concerned that I was going to spend 70% of this action novel exploring this identity and understanding what it's like to be a black man in the military, in, you know, 1972 or whenever it was. And I realized that that's not going to produce the kind of novel they want. They want a propulsive novel that assumes that identity, whereas I'm going to be exploring that identity. So, so I told them I had to pass on that big check, which hurt because I needed the money terribly back then. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, as writers generally, don't we always, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we yeah. always do with that big check, don't we? Yeah. Um, Although, you know, listening to your story, it's fairly clear that you approached and continue to approach writing as a business, you know, with a sort of clear-eyed business mind, as well as the creative side, which I think is is good to hear, because obviously not every writer does. Um, but I, I, I have found that our generation and younger generations, you know, uh, people, younger writers than you or I, have increasingly adopted that mindset of, you know, there's, I look to the previous generation before us, because you and I are about the same age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And quite often the, the idea of treating your writing as a business was frowned upon, you know, by, mm-hmm. not by mm-hmm. everyone, obviously, but by many people involved in the literary world. And I think yeah. the realism of our generation and below has just sort of hit that head on <laughs> and uh, broken through that wall. And now, you know, it's, it's okay to think of your creative work as uh-huh. a business and as the you know thinking well this has got to make money because i need to pay my bills oh for sure um i think i mean you're right there is a lot of enmity back and forth between commercial writers and literary writers like literary writers want the checks the commercial writers cash in commercial writers want the respect the literary writers garner you know and the trick is it's really hard to get both it's hard to get the checks and the respect i mean colson whitehead has found a way to do it um but he's one of the few i think you know yeah I, I, I do think it needs to be a business. I think really, I think a writer, you can insulate yourself from, I don't know, criticism or something by saying, this is a valid expression of my interior landscape or whatever. And it's valid whether a reader stamps it approved or not. And I don't, I don't, I never have quite bought into that. I think, for a novel to be complete, it has to actually find readers. A novel is not complete if I write it and put it in a trunk and nobody reads it. It's just, it's, it's, it's nothing, you know? Um, without it connecting with people, then I don't think it matters. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a broken suggestion that I'm making because if that novel in the trunk gets found in 100 years and is the best thing ever, then it's suddenly finding its readers and it gets complete. And presumably it was complete the whole time then, you know? But I feel like, you know, I, I, I guess maybe the best way I can say this is a few years ago, a few years ago, this is probably like 20 or 22 <laughs> years ago. Um, That's all right. It's still the 1990s. <laughs> I know how you feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was writing this novel. It was a kind of a slightly science fiction, maybe dystopian novel where um, fiction was the currency of this new society. And so all these like oligarchs kept fiction writers in their stables and they had to produce fiction and everything. And it was, to me, it was just a blast. It was super fun. Got about 20 or 30,000 words into it. And I realized I'm only amusing myself here. The, the stuff that I think is so funny and cutting and everything, it's not going to 
connect with the reader. And so I quit that novel and then I went and wrote a werewolf novel because I thought maybe that, maybe I can connect with people that way, you know? And it's, I mean, it, it makes it sound crass. Like it's about selling copies and selling copies is kind of like a byproduct of that, but really it's just about closing that loop, that feedback loop, you know? And if I go to the top of like a pinnacle, a sharp spire and write my novel in isolation and then just sit up there with it, then it's useless. I think it's, it's got to find people. You're right. It can sound crass, I think, if if expressed in the wrong way. The way I always try to explain it to people is that we are storytellers and a storyteller needs an audience. Yeah. You know, even if that audience is just a few people who get it, you know, and nobody else does, yeah. having that audience in itself is what closes that loop you're talking about. Yeah, I totally agree. And the the most dangerous thing to me is to ever blame a book's poor reception on the audience because once you start blaming the audience then you're never gonna get better there's nothing that's ever gonna make you get better you know because you are just insulated and isolated yeah and getting better should be the aim of every you know if you're if you're not trying to get better with every book then what are you doing yeah exactly you've got to be improving you got to be challenging yourself or finding new challenges anyways yeah so with and you, I mean, I mentioned that you're a very prolific short story writer. Listeners may not realize that you're also a very prolific novelist. You've got something like about 25 books published at the moment. Yeah. Which is yeah, probably about, yeah, probably about crazy. I don't know, 300 and 330, 340 stories published. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's a, an absolutely amazing and astounding amount. Oh, well, thank you. How do you go about sorting your ideas you know what happens when you get an idea that you think oh okay this could be a story or even you know maybe this could be a bigger idea and could be a novel yeah um to me it's like to me like novels and stories they don't i mean yeah you need that seed of an idea of a premise for sure but you know i used to carry around spiral notebooks and i would write all my story ideas down in there and i ended up with just shelves of um these journals these spiral notebooks and I would never go back to them. And the reason I would never go back to them is because it's not about the actual premise. It's about the voice. To me, it's about the voice. I can't tell a novel or a story until the voice presents itself. And what the voice is, it's not about diction or dialect or anything like that. It's about the um, angle the narration is coming at in the story or what kind of how do how to say what kind of like boundaries or limitations or what's the method of delivery for exposition that's basically it that's what i mean by voice i think what's the method of delivery for the exposition and until i have that then the story cannot work and it does need the premise of um you know what if cuckoo clocks came alive or whatever it is you know but um until i have a voice it doesn't work and and I never have the character first either. I just start telling the story and the character like comes out of the story pretty much. I mean, I think the character is primary. Don't get me wrong, but um, I've got to have that voice. And what I did like about two years ago, a library came to me, wanted to buy my papers. And I said, sure. Cause it would unload a lot of stuff from my office, you know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> make some shelf space. <laughs> exactly. But um, one thing I included in that boxes of all my spiral notebooks, cause I wanted to like divest myself of those so that I would, kind of have to move forward with all this baggage dragging behind me. You know, I miss them terribly. They were like a safety support unit. Like I could fall back into them if I ever ran out of ideas, but I decided that I'm just always going to have new ideas. That's the way to go instead of 
I'm worried that I'm going to run out of juice, you know? Yeah, that's funny. I've talked about this before on the show about how a little bit of fear is good for a writer yeah. and sort of you know, oh, removing yeah. those safety nets. And it sounds like that's what that did for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. If you, and I understand exactly what you mean about finding the character in the writing. I, I do a similar thing sometimes, not always, but there are some stories I tell, yeah, where I'm not entirely sure about the characters, mm-hmm. but as I write them, they grow into the, you know, the people that they eventually become. Yeah. If you write that way, I presume, does that mean you're, and you said you don't outline. So, Presumably that means you're a linear writer and you just start at the start and keep going until you reach the end. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, what I, what happens is like, I'll be standing in line at Burger King waiting for a Whopper and I hear that first line in my head and I like write it down in my head and then I get home and I write it down on my computer and that line kind of spawns the second line and pretty soon I got a paragraph, pretty soon I got a scene, pretty soon I got a chapter and I'm just chasing, chasing it. You know, um, to me, that's, that's how I write best, like stories that I chase, that I figure out as I go. And I think what's so important is, for me anyway, is the way I work or the way I think is to write myself in a corner after corner um, such that I have to become a better writer to write my characters out of this. To Like if they're locked in a room with no doors, and I don't even know what locked means in that case, but if they're in a room with no <laughs> doors... Um, how am I going to get them out? And I have no idea. And so I wait till the next day and I come at it and I'm like, well, the novel can't end here. I've got to get them out of this room somehow and I've got to figure it out. And, and that to me makes for storytelling that has all the ups and downs that the reader likes, I guess. Um, like some of the, like one of the most pleasant novels I've read in the last few years was probably Gillian Flynn. I don't know if it's Gillian or Jillian, but it, who, the, she wrote Gone Girl and, you know, Sharp Objects, oh, yeah, yeah. all that. Um, um, in Gone Girl, like halfway through that novel, it seems to kind of go over and you realize there's still like 150 pages left. I can feel it on my right thumb. You know, I know there's all these pages left, but how can it go on? I love that feeling in the novel. And in The Only Good Indians, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to rig it such that it felt like the story was over, yet the reader can tell there's all these pages left. What is going to happen? I love that feeling. Yeah, I've, I've seen you uh, mention that. I've, well, I've seen a lot of reviewers mention uh about the book that they kind of stop they all seem to stop reading at the point where and I, I'm, I'm trying not to be spoilery where yeah. the, the you know the viewpoint changes and the style changes yeah and right. i assume that's what you're talking about there is you get to that point and you want the reader to go wait a second how can there be all this book left yeah exactly i love that feeling and um i had to stop there too when i was writing that novel that's that's when i wrote i have this book coming out in um, a little bit night of the mannequins that's when I wrote None of the Mannequins. I stopped writing Only Good Indians and went and wrote the novella as a Wait, way to you, like... You wrote a book in between writing another book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was just a novella, though, yeah. So, I mean, this seems, this seems like not a very fast way to write. I think that's what's puzzling me about this, this mm-hmm. method. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously it works for you. You know, you're a very prolific and successful and critically acclaimed writer, but it seems to be making an awful lot of work for yourself. No, you're right. Um, like people always talk about um, people who are like gardeners versus people who are architects or well, that's a, that's a George Martin. Yeah. Is, right. Something like that. Um, and yeah, I'm more of a gardener. I just throw something out there and see what's going to grow. Um, but people always, I guess the supposition is that that's two distinct types of world building. And I guess it is the mechanism is a little different, but 
if I'm a if I'm a planner and before I write my novel, I sit down and do biographical sketches of the characters, and I map out like the socio political place and the climate and the ecology and everything of a place such that I can hit the ground running and I know what's around every corner. That's great and wonderful. And that does seem like it saves time. A lot of pre-work, of course, but um, doing it the other way where I have a character walking across an essentially blank landscape that comes alive as that character steps on it, you know, um, I do hit a lot of dead ends and I have to back out and go a different way and back out and go a different way. But all of those dead ends, all that backing out means that I'm traversing the whole landscape such that by the end of my process, I know what's around the corners because my character has been in some like subjunctive form to every part of this um, landscape in some draft and version. So the world building result, I think, is the same as someone who does it all beforehand. Just I prefer to do it in process with a lot of mistakes, you know? Yeah. So I mean, that is actually how I plot is when I when I'm plotting because I do outline um generally and when I'm plotting yeah I do have the same thing where I quite often will run down dead ends and realize I oh, know that's not going to work it's mm-hmm. a dead end back mm-hmm. out my view but it, you're right that it is even those dead ends are a really valuable part of the process because yeah. knowing what doesn't work for this particular story in any case is just as valuable as knowing what does Oh, for sure. You know, I never, and I never realized that until a few years ago, I signed a student to write a choose your own adventure story for me. And so I had to explain to her what a choose your own adventure story, a choose your own adventure story is. And she's like, Oh, I get it. And she'd never read one. And she comes back a couple weeks later, gives me this like novella. And, um, she didn't understand that every branch, like every fork in the path, which goes two different ways, like to the dungeon or the well house or whatever it is. Um, that once you take B instead of A, A doesn't exist. And so the way she wrote this Choose Your Own Adventure was all these branches exist simultaneously, wow. which was amazing because you had a and she did and, and so you'd have a character over here in the F branch kind of looking over the wall and seeing the character in the C branch. And it was really cool. I had never conceptualized anything like that. And it made me realize that that that's basically how our world build, you know. She's gotta take that to a publisher. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of neat. Huh? <laughs> I think I want to read that. <laughs> wow, talking about House of Leaves, good Lord. Um, so how much revision do you do then? It sounds like uh, when you reach the end of your first draft, is it pretty complete because you've done that backing up and starting again? Man, I, I wish it was, but no, it's, it hardly ever is. Um, you know, you always have this dream that I'm going to get to the end and it's going to be perfect, but that seems to be never the case, you know? Um, so I have to do a lot of revision. I get to, I get it to a point that I'm, I think it's acceptable. I never think it's quite good, but I think it's acceptable. And then I give it to my agent and she comes back and says, well, it's good except for it all sucks, you know? And then I have to have to change everything. And then um, she's really smart too, my agent. She knows storytelling and books and everything in the market, um, of course. So I'll, I'll work with her for shoot, probably four, four or six months and through a lot of drafts and we'll get the book to a sellable point. And I'll give it to the editor and the editor will acquire it. And then they'll say it's good, except for like all this, like an example would be the only good Indians. Um, when I first submitted that to the publisher and the publisher bought it, the whole first section, um, the house that ran red section was in, it was in a, what felt like second person. It was revealed to be dramatic monologue at the end. And I thought that was a wonderful formal trick. And he said, yeah, it's a fun trick, but I don't see what you're gaining out of it. And so I had to go back and change it all to third person, which was quite the task because it's not about just changing a few pronouns and verbs. No. It's about changing how 
how the sentences work, you know? And um, so that to me was a big overhaul on that. And in the process of doing that, I kind of realized that where the novel opens with that Ricky um, prologue, it was not a prologue that used to come about halfway through the novel, but I realized I could tilt the novel and that would, that, that chapter would slide all the way to the front and serve as a kind of a mood setter for the slasher, you know? And so, yeah, things change immensely. I've only ever had two novels, I think that didn't end up having any revision. Wow. So, I mean, I, the fact that you've even got two novels that went without revision, frankly, is, <laughs> I think quite impressive because <laughs> I've I've certainly never had one of those. Um, so you, you say you finish it, it goes to your agent, comes back from your agent, you rewrite, goes to an editor, yeah. and, and so on. Uh, do you not have beta readers involved in this process anywhere? Oh, I do. I forgot about them. And uh, yeah, they they get it. They get it before my agent. They get it when it's like hot off my computer. You know, right? And yeah. So that's the same as me. Yeah, yeah and it's not always the same set of people either because I write a lot of different books and I'll try to identify which of my friends or former students or friends now or whoever, whoever I know or fellow writers too, um, who would be the most help with this novel? You know, it's not about who would like it, but who will see its potential and help me work it towards that potential. You know? Yeah. Oh, I think that's an absolutely a really important point to make actually with beta readers is that yes, you're not, you're not looking for people who'll just say to you, yeah, this is great. That's not, that's not helpful. Yeah. No, it's not, not at all. No. You want people who will come back and say, okay, I, I can see what you're doing, but this doesn't work and this doesn't work. And have you thought yeah. about this? And you know, that that's what you're yeah. looking for from those people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's really interesting to me that you, you mentioned former students mm-hmm. in that group. I mean, that must be, uh, and we haven't even mentioned this, but you're a professor of English at, uh, is it uh, Colorado? Yep, University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, so that must be a weird, or it could be a weird experience, both for you and for them, given that you have, you know, you've been these people's professor, you've taught these people, and then you're asking for their opinion on one of your manuscripts. Well, I mean, when I worked with them, I could tell that they were really smart and had good instincts, you know? And so then I will go to them for help because I trust what they say, you know? And and I guess kind of my idea there, I never had thought about it like this, but like for three or five years or however long I worked with a student, I was kind of feeding them full of like my advice, like my teaching philosophy, my writing philosophy, all that stuff. And um, I guess my idea is that when I give my book to them, they can give some of my own medicine back to me because I'm probably too <laughs> close to the project to see it, you know? Well, that's the that's the purpose of beta reads, isn't it? Yeah, is you we get to the end and we're so like you said earlier, we're so immersed in it, you know, the kind yeah. of, uh, you know, whether or not people follow that same kind of method writing style or whatever, the, it doesn't matter that you've spent so much time with the manuscripts at this point that you can't see the wood for the trees. You can't see the the words for the paragraphs or whatever. Sure. Um, yeah. And you're so, in, you're, you're so in love with the characters that you just, you think they're perfect and to change even the most small thing about their story ruins it, you know? Right. When in actual fact you can change quite a yeah. lot <laughs> and things will still yeah. work you know yeah. it's yeah. i think yeah. the the thing and this is something we have to re- you know we know this it's so obvious and yet we forget it every time that people only see the finished result you know mm-hmm. out of the entire world maybe a dozen people including yourself will actually know all the changes that you've made to the book before it goes to print everyone else thinks that's it. That's the only version that they know. 
And so you can make these huge changes and it's okay because nobody will know you've made them. Yeah. And yet we, f- we forget for sure. this when we're writing all the time. Oh, we do. Totally. Like I had one novel, not for nothing, kind of a second person, small town noir that um, I gave it to a beta reader, a friend, and he came back and he said, oh, is this a sequel to this other novel I did? It came from Del Rio. And I said, what are you crazy? And he said, yeah, you used the same name for the protagonist. I had no idea I had done that, you know? <laughs> so I had to do, I had to go, I had to go back and do a global replace on that character's name. And that to me made the novel self foreign. I'm like, this isn't like Frank or whatever the name is. This is Ted, you know? Um, but the reader will have none of that discomfort. I, I think only I have that discomfort, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and like I say, things like actual plot points that just don't work or don't make sense. I've had those before now where people have said, you know, this actually doesn't, this doesn't match what you wrote two chapters ago or whatever. And I'll be like, oh no. Yeah. But, uh, yeah the reader, they're not going to see that. They don't know. You know, I, li- I like what Neil Gaiman says. He said, he'll say that you'll, you'll write a piece and you and your editor will like go to the wall arguing about what should happen in this chapter or that development or whatever. And you'll make a stand on it. You're like, I'm not going to publish this book if this happens and all. And, and then five years later, you'll look at that and you can't even remember if that was your suggestion or the editor's suggestion. You know, it, 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 it all falls away. And that, I, I've always taken a lot of solace in that. And I think, of course, Neil Gaiman's right about it too. Yeah, that doesn't even take five years for me. I mean, <laughs> it can be yeah, like yeah. six months later and I'll be like, I have no idea whose part this was, you know, whether this was me or my editor or my agent or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or even yeah. one of my beta readers. You know, I know that there's stuff in my novels that beta readers have suggested that I've thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. But if you actually try, if I try to find what those pieces are, I can't remember. I'm like, no, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, we we don't write novels to remember them. We write them to forget them, to keep moving on. Like when I write something, it's to get it out of my head, not to memorialize it forever. In my head. What a great way of putting it. I love that. We don't write them to remember them. We write them to forget them. Fantastic. You should be a professor. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's start to wrap this up then. So um, what, this will be an interesting one for somebody who's written so much as you. What do you think you're pretty good at? I'm pretty good. I've always had like a, um, well, I think what I'm pretty good at is also like my weakness, actually. Um, I'm good at dilating a moment um, at taking three or four seconds and making it last six pages, you know, but that can also be a, a drawback because it, it can make the thing feel turgid. It can make it feel kind of slow, you know, like I'm really interested in the moment by moment depiction of this explosion or this car wreck or whatever, but that's just me. The reader is not necessarily going to be that interested in it. So I didn't have to draw back and try to find a happy medium. It's I always feel like I'm standing at the bottom of a staircase and my reader is standing at the top of a staircase. We have to find that magic step between us where we both can see the magic or feel the magic or whatever it is. Okay. So, uh, what do you wish you were better at? I wish I were better at the boring parts. (laughs) Um, I have like given the choice. I will make my books be all about the car chases and the gunfights and the parachute jumps or whatever, you know? But but if, if everything is happening at that high screech, then it becomes monotonous. You've got to have the dips too. You gotta to have the character going back to their house to do nothing for a day or whatever. And um I'm I'm that's my weakness. I've always felt that's my weakness, like the boring parts, because I always wonder why am I writing this boring stuff? There should be something happening, you know? Um 
And I guess what I always come back to this, a Philip K. Dick novel, which one is it going to be? Man, I can't remember. It might be the Galactic Plot Healer, but it might not be. Um, he has a character go back to his conapt, which is you know, his, his house, his apartment. And, um, and it, it's one of those moments where it's, it's like a saddle between high points where the character is just kind of going back to take a nap or eat or something. But the character walks into his house and evidently this is a function of the future or an accessory to the future. There's a little like, um, I don't know, 10 by 5 set off rectangle in the living room in which grass grows and he takes off his shoes and he goes and walks in that grass as a way to kind of unwind. And that to me, I always remember that, that you can make the boring parts interesting. They don't have to be just somebody sitting there thinking about their day or processing problems or anything like that. You can make the boring parts interesting. And I try to do that as much as I can without dilating the moment too much. And, but that is definitely my weakness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I know exactly what you mean, and I have a tendency to kind of worry about that as well, but it is part of pacing. And yeah. one of the ways yeah. that I've found to get around it is getting to know my characters better. I think if you, you know, there's that old adage about if you know a character well enough, you can stick them in an empty room yeah. and still make it interesting. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's the same kind of, really the same kind of attitude that you need to take to those boring bits as you say is to make them not boring because actually we're with a really we're spending them with a really interesting character i totally agree and like there's a, a novel by sandor Mariah called embers which is just um two old men at a remote estate sitting by a fire in a living room talking over brandy or something the whole novel is that and that to me is the most compelling novel and it probably is because of what you're saying because sandor Mariah knows those characters so intimately that they're interesting just sitting there you know yeah there is nothing as interesting to uh, to people as other people so if you can get oh, that yeah. you know if you can nail yeah. that you've got it haven't you <laughs> yeah for sure for sure what is the last book that you read where the writing really impressed you and why um let me think you know the one the last novel i read that completely blew me away is not out yet i think it comes out in october possibly is um, rebecca runhorse's novel black sun it's a, a second world fantasy um about kind of a different version of america way pre-columbus or i say pre-columbus like no columbus you know but um um that novel just so impressed me i wanted that novel to never end and the writing did impress it i mean the writing and the imagination um that's what always impresses me with fantasy writers so much is that they can just conceptualize a whole different order, you know, like with horror, I have to, in order to scare people, I have to stay in the real world. I can't do like a side world because who cares if there's a monster in the side world, the reader isn't in that side world. I've got to put monsters in their world. So I have to stay in a real place. Fantasy writers just have to imagine down to the granular, granular level, a whole different reality. And that blows me away that they can keep it consistent. Is that book connected to um, Trail of Lightning? Nope. It's a, it's a new series. Oh, fantastic. All right, Stephen, where can people find you online? Twitter, FGJ72. Also at my website, you can just search me up, Stephen Graham Jones. It's stephengramjones.com. You can find me. All right, brilliant. And what work of yours, and this is going to be difficult for you because you have so much of it, but what work of yours <laughs> would you recommend people check out if they haven't read you before? I think The Only Good Indian is the one that's out right now because it, it's like my heart on the page. I mean, every book is my heart on the page, but um, this one 
it's about slash it's a slasher you know it's a slasher set up on the reservation and it's just everything i want to do so if somebody wants to know me that's a pretty good place to start i think brilliant Stephen. thank you so much for coming on the show man it was an honor talking to you this has been great thank you And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. Remember, if you want to support the show, you can become a Patreon supporter. Patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published, can take part in Q&A episodes and more. Go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.